At the end of the Gospels, we find a number of post-resurrection appearances of our Lord Jesus, time when he showed up and revealed himself to his friends. And one of these is found in the 20th chapter of John, beginning at the 24th verse, where we read, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came the first time. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in their midst, and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas responded and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Many of you are aware that we know much more about some of the Lord's disciples than we know of others. That disciple about whom we know the most, I suppose, is Peter. Peter was a natural leader, a man with an enthusiasm for life, and a man with an impetuous nature. He was a man that Jesus gave the nickname Rocky, and is the only disciple to have received such a nickname from the Lord. Second in the list of men who followed Jesus that we know something about is the Apostle John. We read in the Gospels that he, with his brother James, at least in their younger days, were men of volatility and force because they were called the sons of thunder. John was also a thoughtful man of deep affection and who, in his Gospel, refers to himself only as the disciple whom Jesus loved. We know a little bit about James, who was a leader of the apostolic church in Jerusalem, a man whose Resoluteness probably cost him his life as a martyr. There is Nathaniel, a man of disciplined devotion. Andrew, a helpful man with a servant's disposition. Matthew, a man of substance who was in business for himself, and thus his values, his attitudes toward life were marked by initiative and independence and ambition in a healthy sense. And then there's Thomas. Thomas is one of several mentioned as a part of the apostolic band about whose conversion and family and background we know literally nothing at all. In fact, in the history contained in the gospel, apart from Thomas's appearance on the lists of the disciples, we find only four references to him as an individual, and they are all found in the Gospel of John. On this Resurrection Sunday, I'd like to talk with you about this man whose name has commonly come to be associated with doubting and with disbelief. The first of these individual references to John is found in the 11th chapter. And if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you know that the 11th chapter is mainly about Lazarus and his illness and his death 
and his miraculous resuscitation by our Lord Jesus. Jesus was some distance away when a messenger from the family came and said, the one you love is ill, we need you, please come. We remember reading that 11th chapter for the first time and being puzzled that Jesus delayed where you and I would want to rush to the bedside of someone we cared about. But he held back very deliberately, and we understand now, in order that God might be displayed and glorified in the honor and the miracle that was about to take place. In those days, Jesus had told his disciples more than once that he had to go to Jerusalem And that when he did go to Jerusalem, that he was going to suffer many things. That he would be arrested, he would be put on trial, he would be tortured, and he would be killed. Bethany, where Lazarus lay dying, was on the road to Jerusalem and very close to Jerusalem. And so the disciples put two and two together when Jesus declared his intention to go to Bethany And we are told that Thomas said to the others, let's go with him that we might die with him. These are words of leadership. And to our greater interest, they don't come from the lips of a man from whom we might have expected apostolic leadership. They don't come from Peter, that born leader who is so often out in front of the disciples and even Jesus himself. Peter, who, when Jesus told his friends for the first time that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, put himself on the road between Jesus and Jerusalem and said to him, Lord, we will never let these things happen to you. But it wasn't Peter who expressed leadership on this occasion. It wasn't James or John, the two brothers of volatility and boldness, men who were so confident of their natural abilities and their favorite standing with Jesus, that they approached him and asked for the privilege of sitting on his left hand and his right hand in the kingdom that they thought that he was about to establish. And these words of leadership did not come from Andrew, that submissive disciple who so easily yielded to the authority of persons and events. But rather, these words of devotion and commitment come from the lips of a man that we meet here for the very first time as an individual. And they make a simultaneous statement about the kind of man that Thomas was and the kind of person that Jesus is. I remind you that this pledge of allegiance to Jesus was made by a man who, at this point, appears to have had religious misgivings and serious doubts about who Jesus really is. We know this because these things are ascribed to him in the chapters that follow. And yet, even with his misconceptions and doubts, he was still willing to follow Jesus, even to death, if necessary. We can't know what was in the heart and the mind of Thomas at this time. Perhaps he found the presence of Jesus so compelling. He found his relationship with Jesus so satisfying that he couldn't imagine what life without Jesus would be like. And so if Jesus were going to die, Thomas might as well die himself. May have been his thought and sentiment. Maybe he couldn't imagine the injustice of so good a man 
experiencing the horrors that he had described. And his willingness to go with him was prompted by the kind of compassion that one expects from righteous men. It could be that Thomas thought there would be an armed struggle and wanted to take his place on the right side of that struggle, even if that should cost him his life. Whatever his thoughts, whatever his motives, they were noble and they were selfless. By declaring himself willing to follow Jesus even to death, Thomas marks himself as the kind of man that you and I would like to know and the kind of person we should strive to be like, a man who was devoted to Jesus Christ. The allegiance of Thomas always says, also says something to us about the sort of man that Jesus was, the one to whom this allegiance was pledged. There was something about Jesus so naturally regal, so deeply authoritative, so invisibly magnificent that in the histories of his life, no one is recorded as calling him by his name, whether his friends or his enemies. He called others by their name. He always addressed, they always addressed him by a title. They called him Lord, they called him teacher, they called him master, they called him rabbi, but they never called him simply Jesus. Jesus was the kind of man that good men respect by nature and follow instinctively wherever he might lead. If the result of following Jesus were fame and fortune and victory or pain and poverty and death, a man filled by the Spirit of God will consider obedience a loftier goal than worldly prosperity. And wisdom dictates that the blessing of pleasing Christ outweighs the consequences of that service, whatever their scope might prove to be. Jesus is such a Lord, and Thomas is such a man, and thus his declaration, let's go with him that we might die with him. We remember these words of Thomas from the standpoint of history. And it's important for us to note that Thomas would find in the days immediately ahead that as Paul would later write, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. When soldiers appeared in the garden to arrest Jesus, all of his disciples, including Thomas, fled into the night. Through the horrors of the hours that followed, it was Peter who came so close to the place where Jesus was being held that at one point they made eye contact, but Thomas was nowhere to be found. It was John who stood at the foot of the cross upon which Jesus died. It was not Thomas. And even when Jesus appeared to his disciples on the day of his resurrection, he found only 10 of them. His betrayer had taken his own life. And Thomas, who had so resolutely pledged his fidelity to his Lord, even unto death, was nowhere to be found. You and I can sympathize with Thomas in his failure to keep his word to Jesus. Because almost every Sunday, certainly after every communion service in this church and whatever church you may attend, we leave those places with our devotion increased. We've made promises to Jesus to be more faithful, 
to be more diligent. We've pledged to rid our lives of things that we know do not honor him and add to our lives those things which make us his more useful servant. But far more often than not, we find it to be true that for us also the spirit indeed is willing, the flesh indeed is weak. And time after time, we return to our places of worship, embarrassed because of our inability to keep the word that we so recently have given to the Lord, only to seek again and to find again that mercy that refreshes us and renews us. The first individual reference to the Apostle Thomas is this in which he pledges to follow Jesus, even if that would cost him his life. The second and the third of these four individual references are located in John 14 and John 20 and record those words which have given this disciple the appellation Doubting Thomas. The context for each is the upper room. The first occurred on that Thursday that we remembered recently in our worship and the second on the Sunday that we remember and celebrate today. In the first, we hear Jesus say to his disciples, I'm going away, you know where I'm going, you know how to get there. And we hear Thomas say, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and we don't know how to get there. And in the second, on the day of resurrection, the others told Thomas that they had seen the Lord with their own eyes, but he said, unless I see in his hand the print of the nails and put my hand into his womb, I will not believe. What can we say of Thomas? Was he stupid? Was he naive? Was he particularly hard-headed, maybe a skeptic by nature? Was he not a student of the scriptures the others gave their full attention to? Was there some great unconfessed sin in his life that prevented him from seeing what is so obvious to us? We who judge Thomas from the standpoint of history wonder how he could have been such a blockhead. From a similar advantage of looking back on history, we find it strange that King George wasn't more flexible dealing with complaints from the colonies. And we marvel that Hitler could be so foolish as to invade Poland in 1939 and Russia two years later, because we now know what those men did not know at the time. And so it is with Thomas. We need to remember, first of all, that he wasn't the only one of the 12 with questions or doubts. Right after his exchange with Jesus, Philip said to the Lord, if you could just show us the Father, that would satisfy us. We are told that Jesus met these same men on a mountain in Galilee. And Matthew, the historian, says that when they saw him, they worshiped him but some doubted. And in terms of where he was going in the first chapter of Acts, when Jesus appears with these men for the last time, immediately before his ascension, they ask him about the kingdom that they expect him to establish upon the earth at once. 
And thus, when we consider the questions and the misunderstandings and even the doubts of Thomas, we understand that when he opened his mouth, he was expressing the questions and the doubts that others were pondering as well. Let's be very careful of the apparently natural tendency to read the lives of biblical characters and to judge them without trying to see circumstances as they saw them. Thomas wasn't the beneficiary of 2,000 years of time and analysis as we are. He was living on the very cusp of sacred history. And he knew more than we would have known if we were his contemporaries. Thomas had doubts. Fairness requires that we not condemn him for this. And another significant thing to consider about Thomas is that he apparently was an intelligent, independent, clear-thinking man who required evidence for his faith and wasn't about to just go along with the crowd. Isn't this the kind of man that we want sitting in the boardrooms of our churches and our corporations and our unions? Isn't this the sort of fellow we'd like to see in positions of authority and responsibility in our government at all of its various levels? This is the kind of man the church has desperate need of today in its pulpits and in the classrooms of its Sunday schools and its seminaries. Thomas was not a man to believe something simply because he heard someone say that it's true. He had no use for a secondhand religion. He wanted to see the evidence for himself. He demanded the right to weigh that evidence, to run it through the logical sieve of his mind, and to decide for himself what was right and true and good. He was a man who made up his mind slowly. He was a man who made up his mind well. Thomas was the sort of man that others would take their questions through, for they knew that he would never substitute tradition and sentiment for truth. That he would never belittle them for having questions, for he had traveled that way himself. And that what he gave them for an answer would be well-reasoned and worthy of their trust. We need people like Thomas in the church today. We need men and women and young people who think about their faith, who ask questions about their faith, who look at their faith from all of its angles like a jeweler holding a diamond up and turning it in the light, fascinated by each and all of its facets. It's a sad thing, and it's unfair that Thomas is so commonly maligned, so often criticized, so often judged, as if burdened with ignorance bordering on unbelief. In fact, Thomas is a better man than most of his critics, a man worthy of our respect and our imitation. The second and third of these individual references to Thomas as a man are these which express which are commonly regarded as Thomas's doubts. The fourth and the last of these is found in the 20th chapter of John. The setting in space is again the upper room. The setting in time is about a week after the most recent appearance of Jesus. The difference being that this time Thomas is there. In his records of these first two appearances of Jesus to his friends in the upper room, the historian John notes that the doors were shut. 
we assume that this is a significant reference, that it does not merely mean that there was a chill in the air and the doors were shut for warmth. It probably means that the doors were locked, they were bolted, they were secured in some ways, probably as an expression of the fear that the disciples reasonably had that they might soon have the opportunity to share Jesus' fate. For in that same place before he suffered, Jesus had told them, the world hates me, and as the world has hated me, so the world will hate you. And thus the doors were shut. But those shut, sealed doors speak to us in a perhaps unintended way. For on each occasion, with the doors being shut, we are told that Jesus appeared to the men inside that room. He simply materialized in their midst without having to pass through a door or a window. One of my favorite Easter questions, I suspect you've heard me ask it before if you've been around here very long, is the question, why did the angels move the stone that once sealed Jesus' grave? There was a time in my life when I would have thought the question was silly. And I would have said, well, they moved it to let Jesus out, obviously. But then I read on into the 20th chapter of John. And I became aware that in his resurrection body, Jesus was not limited by the forces that limit us. And he had the ability to pass through walls and doors and stones and appear in rooms where the doors were securely bolted. And I realized there has to be another answer. And then it came to me, as I suspect it has come to many of you, that they didn't move the stone to let Jesus out. They moved the stone to let Jesus' disciples in, that they might see that indeed the stone or the tomb is empty, and that their faith, like that of Thomas, might be thoroughly grounded, not in hope, not in supposition, but in reality. As we celebrate this Easter, if you haven't, I urge you in your mind to visit that empty tomb, to carefully consider both its historical reality and its personal implications for you. And if there is a need in your life, as Jesus said to Thomas, that you be no longer unbelieving, but believing. John gives us the impression that when Jesus appeared the second time, that he greeted the entire body, but was looking at Thomas all of the time, it was obvious that the second appearance was intended primarily for Thomas. He spoke to Thomas. He invited his friend to do what he claimed he had to do, to touch his risen body with his own hands in order to be convinced that Jesus is indeed alive again, indicating once again Jesus' incredible ability to know what no ordinary mortal could possibly know. Thomas had had a week to think things over. He'd had a week to consider the strange story that his friends had told him of seeing Jesus alive after his death. Their story is so consistent, so certain, so joyful, that Thomas may have been on the verge of faith himself when the Lord appeared the second time. In any case, it's interesting to note that Thomas did not do what he had said earlier he had to do. 
There is no record that he actually stepped forward, extended his hand, and touched the body of Jesus. It's as if the testimony of his friends, seeing the Lord's face, hearing his voice, seeing, sensing once again the general authority of his nature, were all that Thomas required. And he whispered in wonder, or he cried out in joy, my Lord and my God. Suddenly, all of his doubts vanished, his questions dissolved into insignificance. His vision was filled with his Lord, and that was all that his mind and all that his heart needed. The Bible speaks of a day when every eye shall see him, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. My hope is that that day has already come for you, and that you come to this time and place to express that joy that can barely be contained. It is to those who have come to such a day that Jesus made the promise, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, then I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. If that day has not come for you, I urge you to pray that it might. Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, all people will be made to stand before him. And it's far wiser for us to anticipate that day as his friend and his follower than to be numbered among those who will see him and beg the mountains to fall upon them to hide them from his wrath and to hear him say, depart from me, for I have never known you. Thomas virtually disappears from the inspired history at this point, but there's an ancient tradition that in service to Christ, he retraced the steps of Abraham, taking the gospel to Parthia, which lies between the Tigris and Indus rivers, and then traveled further east, even into India, and that he who came so slowly but so certainly to faith in Jesus Christ is said to have died a martyr's death. Little is known about this particular disciple, but from what is known, we have much that we might learn. We learn the value of pledging and practicing our allegiance to Christ even before all of our questions have been answered. We learn the importance of asking questions about our beliefs, of applying our minds to our faith, of seeking a religion that is rooted in history, that stands up to inquiry, and that is able to meet the needs of all who truly hunger and thirst after righteousness. And we learn the reality and the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or perhaps put in a better way, we learn of the reality and the glory of the resurrected Christ. At the tomb, his angels, the angels ask, why do you seek the living among the dead? He isn't here. He is risen. In the weeks after the resurrection, the disciples came out from behind those locked doors, stood boldly in the streets of Jerusalem, and spoke to all who would listen. Among other things, they said that this Jesus God has raised up. And they said, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He lives is the heart of the Christian message to the world. He lives 
is the foundation of the faith and the hope of every Christian believer. I'd like to close by reading words from two hymns that I trust all of us love. In the first we read, Someday the silver cord will break, and I no more as now shall sing. But oh, the joy when I shall wake within the palace of the king, and I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. Words written by Fanny Crosby, who was blind. And John Newton said, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. On this Easter Sunday, may every single one of us be numbered among those of whom Jesus spoke, that they have ears to hear and eyes to see. Let us pray. Our God, I pray that it might be true for every one of us in this room that confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and faith in Christ himself might run freely among us, that it might be at work within us, assuring us as death draws nearer day by day, that it might be at work shaping our characters, building our faith, making us every day your more joyful servants. We thank you for this man with his questions. We thank you for the sure and patient way in which your son dealt with them. We commit ourselves to him. In his name we have come and in his name we pray. Amen.